And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're talking about the second part of Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Yes, and what happens in the second part, Miss Mags? So the second part is, I would say, a little bit more of a traditional memoir compared to the first part where Marjan documents her life and her growth from when she's 14 and first moves to Vienna without her parents into young adulthood and her right after her divorce. And so this part to me read much more as an introspective look at human growth and also the effects of the trauma that she endured as a child because of the war and to the separation from her parents as she's growing up into an adult, essentially. We really see the effects of that trauma. We see her very tumultuous life as somebody who's displaced by war in Europe. And we get a much more insular look at her personal life and experiences following the larger narrative we got in the first half about the cultural revolution and the Iranian-Iraqi war. Yeah, I think that's a really eloquent way of summarizing the second half. I agree. I think that the first half is much more focused on the context of what's going on and how she got to the second half. And then the second half is kind of her journey and sort of her reclaiming of her personal experience, because as I'm sure we'll talk about further, there's a feeling that she doesn't have a right to her personal experience and personal trauma because she left the war during the worst parts of it. And then compounding that, she feels that what people experienced back in Iran was more traumatic than what she experienced while she was in Austria. And therefore, even though those experiences were extremely difficult to the point where she experienced homelessness for a couple of months as a teenager, she felt like she couldn't share that because she would be taking away something from the people she loved who experienced war in a more direct way than she did. Yeah, I agree. So the beginning is very much like a, this is what it was like growing up in Iran. Here were the factors going on that I didn't really understand at the time. And this was my understanding of it with context placed in. And then the second half is a, this was my personal experience going to Europe, experiencing culture shock being homeless, and then coming back. And this is how I got to where I am today. So it starts off as almost a macro narrative and then ends up on a micro narrative note, which I first read this book in a class called Woman in Writing that was all about looking at literature, English literature through a feminist lens and kind of like reclaiming what classic literature is for women. It was an interesting place to read this. And it came back to me during the second reading because that was the, the place that I was first introduced to the personalist political text. And I like that it ended on such a personalized 
note because I think that personalization is really important whenever we're talking about identity politics, which gets a really bad name, I think, when we're talking about it today in political contexts. Lots of people are like, oh, why are you focusing on identity politics? That's not what matters. But identity politics do matter and they have large outcomes. Like if you're anti-capitalist, I hate to tell you, but you care about identity politics because you're caring (laughs) about the livelihood of the marginalized. Yeah, I think also something this story does really well too. And we touched on this a bit in the first episode we did on this, but I think we'll probably discuss more deeply is that by getting so personal in the second half, it really pushes back against westernized stereotypes of what it's like to be Iranian and what it was like to be Iranian during this period in the late 70s and 80s and how there's just no single story, you know, of all of this. She had a really unique experience and that experience is just as valid as somebody who stayed in Iran, you know, and she does a really masterful job as an author kind of putting all of these pieces together later, giving the reader the context into her personal life and struggles without necessarily spelling out for you all of the ways in which trauma A connects and feeds into trauma B, which leads to reaction C, if that makes sense. Like it's set up as this beautiful narrative, but she's not holding your hand necessarily or spelling it out for you. Maybe there's a little bit of handholding in the first half with the context of the Iranian war, which feels to me at least very much set up for uh, a Western reader or at the very least a contemporary reader who wasn't there at the time. But when it comes to her personal story, she doesn't hold your hand through it. And she lets you, the reader, make all of the connections as to how this micro and macro really interweave together. I agree a lot with that. And also too, from a journalistic perspective, I really appreciated her doing that as well. This idea of like, owning her story to present the diversity of stories because in journalism you learn you know you have to avoid bias and often that means that you turn into like a CNN reporter and you present both sides there's only two sides (laughs) you present both sides as equally important but personalize something like this like when you tell a story you're owning up to your own bias and your own perspective and therefore it becomes inherently more truthful because this is just your perspective so I appreciated that too (laughs) yeah 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 she did it so well to putting those two pieces together with some of the the macro context giving that was maybe more based in like historical fact with that more journalistic personal perspective that hones into something that's really truthful and vulnerable to what her experience was And together they paint a really compelling picture of what this period in time was like. I think for me, that's probably the reason that this book is such a modern classic today is that it just balances all of those aspects really beautifully. Yes. Snaps. You said something earlier about how she doesn't hold your hand in the second half of the book. And towards like the very end, I think there's a great example of that, that 
I've been dying to talk about ever since I read it, and I'm sure Maggie is too. So on page 285, the chapter is called The Makeup. Marjan is trying to meet her boyfriend out. She's living back in Iran at this point. She's a grown-up, and she decides to wear makeup because he's commented on her appearance before, and she wants to, like, give him a sexy surprise. And makeup is forbidden for women. So she's wearing lipstick, and she sees the police come, and she sees a man just sitting there minding his own business, and she decides that the best way to protect herself is to go to the police and report this man saying that he said something offensive to her. Which Maggie and I will unpack in just a second (laughs) from our very Americanized view. And then, so like, she, she tells her boyfriend about this who has been living in Iran and like understands the cultural context better than she does. Because the police go ahead and arrest that man. And her boyfriend laughs about it and says that she has great self-preservation and kind of gives some hints as to what could happen to this man, which include somebody like beating him up to maybe even killing him. And then later, she tells her grandmother this story and her grandmother refuses to talk to her after this. Because she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You have family members who have been arrested. And I feel like that's a really great example of showcasing it to us. Because like, it's not explicitly said that it's wrong. But because we have the grandmother's perspective, we can see that this isn't funny, even though it's being treated as funny in the text. Yeah, and that part is really explicit. The grandmother's reaction on page 291 is, and I quote, no, I think that you're a selfish bitch. That's what I think. So there's a real wake-up call for Marjan, I think, that's implied in that scene. Not even implied. It's explicitly talked about afterwards that her grandmother's reaction to this took her by surprise, but also made her reevaluate her thought process about all of this. But... It was a really interesting and jarring scene to read. From my perspective, both times that I read it, it was really uncomfortable to watch her just sell that man out, essentially. But then there's also part of me as a reader that hearkened back to what happened when she was a kid who was taken away from wearing her hijab wrong and wearing a a denim jacket of I understand where that instinct for self-preservation came from and that instinct to head off danger before it can point you, point it itself out to you almost. Like, I got that. And then all of that was paired with this really intense, oh my God, please don't, this man did nothing, you know? So it was a very um, conflicting experience reading that, for me at least. How did you feel about it? I had a similar experience, I think, too. I think, like, it's hard being a white Westerner reading this book because our experiences are so very different from Marjan's. But reading it, you know, you can't help, as a white woman, you're like, oh, God, living in the USA, because you can't help but think about the many times that white women have pinned crimes on Black men who didn't deserve it. But also, this is as you bring up with the the fact that like she too has been penalized, it sets up like this interesting 
it's not even like a pyramid. It's like a web of, of different privileges and oppressions because her context is different. And also the way it's treated was also like jarring to me. And I think it was meant to be jarring. I think that it was meant to like play on that instinct that I had for, oh my God, you're condemning an innocent man. And like, this is vile. But also because it kind of glosses over it, you have to really think about her perspective and where she's coming from. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard because when you're reading a story, you so very much want to like empathize with the character. Like you feel like you are the character. And that really emphasized for me that I wasn't the character in the very many, like that this was a real person with very different experiences. And also because she's a real person has as many flaws as you and I do, you know, and probably I would say almost definitely given the aftermath of this story, wouldn't make that same decision today if she was in a similar position. I think what really emphasized to me, though, the vileness of the situation was the fact that her boyfriend, Reza, laughs. And that's when she starts to laugh, too. There's almost a moment where herself as a character doesn't know how to react to what just happened. And then she tells him and his laughter is what encourages her to make light of the situation or like feel better about herself in that scenario, potentially. Um, And that's where for me, things took the most vile turn because there seemed like a moment where Marjan was going to have an internal conflict about what just happened. And as an author, if she wanted to make herself seem relatable and like a good person, she, she not like a good person. She is a good person, but like in, in that moment, like she made the moral decision. Um, mm. She could have spun it that way. Right. Mm. And instead she took a really nuanced perspective, I think in uh, showcasing this moment of, of, of levity that was really difficult to read about, you know, but did emphasize the fact that she's just a person in a really impossible situation in some ways. And that impossible situation led her to make a bad decision that probably really hurt somebody else. It was not an okay thing to do, but her choice to include this in the text, I feel like is almost kind of brave. Like, I don't know... I've never done anything to that that had that sort of consequence, but I've done plenty of microaggressions that like I'm not proud of throughout my life. And I don't know if I would be brave enough to include them in a text like this, but she did. And I think that's important because it does make you think. And it it is uncomfortable when it's glossed over. It's uncomfortable when her boyfriend laughs. And it's almost like the fact that he has more experience in this world than she does makes it more uncomfortable for me because he knows the realities of what could have happened to this man more than she does. I don't know what to make of that. I think too, though, there's also the layer of the fact that her relationship with Reza is really unhealthy and they're not well suited for each other. And part of that reason, or at least what I gleaned from the text 
is because ultimately they have different, not just experiences, but moral standings and beliefs. And she changed herself a lot, at least at the beginning of their relationship to meet his expectations and beliefs. And in some ways we see it in the smaller details, right? Like what sets off this whole encounter in the first place, which is that she felt like she had to wear lipstick for him. But then later in the novel, there's this really compelling text panel right before they get divorced, where it shows her sitting next to herself on a couch, essentially. Yeah, it's on page 318. And the text simply says he married... And the picture has an arrow pointing to her, which is Marjan with tulips in the background sitting happily on the couch looking in many ways like a like a, a proper lady, I would almost say, so to speak. She's in a dress. She's clearly wearing makeup. And the second panel says, and found himself with, and the picture has an arrow pointing saying her. And the background is black and she's wearing a pantsuit and she's smoking and she looks very angry and very sullen. And it's this reflection, I think, of how differently they view and see the world that and how desperately she wants to fit in to his perceptions of the world that really hones itself in for me in this interaction because if she hadn't been, I think so I don't want to say desperate because I'm not sure that that's quite the right word, but I can't think of a better one right now. So we're going to roll with it. If she hadn't been so, I guess, eager maybe to be what he wanted, maybe she wouldn't have laughed. Maybe she would have taken a step back in that scenario. She wouldn't have even been in the scenario in the first place, frankly, because she wouldn't have been out and about wearing lipstick because that's not who she is or how she like she likes to present herself typically. And that nuance to this whole interaction also makes me really uncomfortable because it emphasizes the ways in which a really unhealthy relationship can change an individual on some really like base moral levels too. So there's all of this stuff happening in one very vile scene. That's really hard to unpack. I think from any perspective, really. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that like even this panel that on 318 that you just mentioned is a really good example of what you were talking about with her not holding your hand because you can just read that as like, Oh, she's young. She didn't know herself, which I think is a valid reading, but there's so much going on there. And she isn't explicitly telling you like they're, they're divorced. We don't really get to see a lot. This, these two pages really 318 and 319 are, are, biggest examples of like what's wrong with their relationship and it's not really dived into that much elsewhere you know it kind of skims years like she we know she doesn't love him but it's never really explicitly stated why she never explicitly says these are our differing moral values another thing about that panel that Maggie just pointed out that I want to talk about later 
so this is just kind of a reminder for everyone that we're going to talk about this. In that panel, in the picture of her looking like a proper lady, her mole is a lot less visible than the the panel of her with her mole being big. And that's something I picked up during the second half. During my original reading, I had annotated that her her mole is an anchor for her identity, which I'm not sure if she explicitly says. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it's true that a lot of the reasons you see for, or that she explains explicitly for the reasons that her and Reza don't work out are because, are almost superficial, you know? She talks about the fact that they fight and they bicker largely about little things said explicitly. They end up sleeping in the same room. They ultimately lead different lives, right? And that's what's said about it in an explicit manner. But it's all of the small stuff that really shows you the implied moral values that are so different for the two of them. And I think the thing you said about her not knowing herself yet is really interesting to me because they are young when they get married, right? They're like 21, 22. Can't speak to that. Young to get married. I did it. (laughs) It didn't end up with these consequences though. Not yet, at least. Uh, And (laughs) not ever, hopefully. And I think that part of the conundrum here is the fact that she does know herself, right? We see that in that panel in 318, 319. She is the lady on the right who knows what she likes to wear and how she likes to present herself and chooses to put that away for a while in order to court Reza. And it has bad consequences for her relationship and I think how much of that was like a conscious decision versus how much of that was discovered along the way is Mm -hmm. you know majorly up for debate so to speak like I'm not trying to say that she consciously chose to deceive him or anything right because I don't think many people do that (laughs) I (laughs) I can't say no one but I don't think many people do that and that's not the perspective that I got reading this book But in trying to reinvent herself for multiple different reasons throughout the second half of the novel, including failing mental health and being unsure of who she is in new contexts, she ends up straying away from a character that she ultimately consistently comes back to, who's smart and sharp and witty and doesn't necessarily fit into what a quote-unquote proper lady should be or should be doing in uh, a Western or Iranian context, I think. And in trying to escape that part of herself, she ends up in these weird positions, like with Reza, like we see at the beginning of the the second half of the novel, where she ends up with Julie and Momo and all of those people. And... Ultimately, she spends a lot of time in the second half of the novel running away from who she is. Yeah, I I think I largely agree with that assessment. I think for me, to frame it a little bit differently from, from my perspective and also to like state it more explicitly, she lost herself during the Depression. And I think that like when she meets Reza, that's not who she truly... She's like developed a new persona that isn't truly who she is, but it's part of what gets her to where she truly is. And I would also argue, too, in the beginning of the novel, 
even though she's doing things that she does not feel are authentic to her, this is all a part of her journey. And they end up being kind of authentic to her in part. Like she, in, in the first, in the first part, she really identifies with being punk. And the second part opens with her making friends with a bunch of punks. So that I think is important. I think that's consistent. That's consistent character development, even though she's now trying things that aren't consistent with her character. But even then, things that aren't consistent with her character, like doing drugs and stuff that she's like being pushed to do that are outside of her comfort zone, end up kind of being a part of her later identity. She still smokes, for instance. She might not party in the same way, but she does still smoke. And like, she likes a little bit of partying. That ends up being a consistent thread. So I think that all of these new personas, even the one that she developed while meeting Resin, getting out of her depression, ends up sort of being a part of her persona because she does kind of like some of these westernized ideals. She likes being pretty. She just doesn't want to be like hammered into that. So I think that like, yes, her identity is consistent throughout the entire two volumes, but I also think that she picks up more along the way while she tries out these new identities and they end up bringing us to the end of the novel where she lives in France and does her thing. Yeah, I agree with that from an identity perspective, but there's multiple points throughout the second part of the novel where her circumstances and some of these new personas lead her to make moral decisions that she ultimately doesn't agree with. And it's not just with this like individual scene. There's some more micro aspects of that too. And I think that it's those core values that I'm talking about when I'm thinking about the ways in which she kind of strays away from parts of herself. It's not like the punk persona or anything or her as an aerobics instructor or any of that so much as it is that she's put in circumstances where she ends up making moral decisions that she probably wouldn't agree with today. It's implied that she doesn't agree with today from how she treats them in in the novel. And that part is the part that I think leads to the circumstances that lead her to Reza (laughs) because she's, she's trying to navigate all of that and who she is. um, And is, you know, varying levels of successful at it. I agree with that. But I think that in order to be certain of your morals, you kind of need to be able to test them out like that. And you need to make bad mistakes. And it's never really like, I think by giving us some of these very vulnerable accounts, like the fact that she was homeless for few a few months, <laughs> she's not necessarily saying that she regrets it. Like she might regret parts of it it certainly made her life harder but all of these things have made up who she is today and have made up her current moral systems and like you know when I was five I had a certain moral value system that does relatively match my current like value system but that doesn't mean that the mechanics of that weren't tested out and haven't changed I have definitely developed as a human emotionally (laughs) Uh, since I was five years old, you know, I think that she's like trying to figure herself out. And I think that there is some anchor there because there's always some anchor when you're trying to figure yourself out. There's always some sort of like core of who you are, but that core evolves and needs to evolve throughout life and life experiences. I think ultimately we're saying the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I think that also, I don't know, it's very human, right? Like, that's just how humans grow and evolve and all of that and I think that 
when you're trying to figure yourself out sometimes, especially in your teenage years and into your early adult years, sometimes you do just try different things out to try them out. You know, it's just a thing that happens. I think that that was more what I was getting at in the sense of talking about the fact that she always ends up coming back to these core aspects of herself is that while she's trying out these different personas and things, to a certain extent, that's what it feels like, right? Is that she's trying them out. And that's not to say that she comes off as inauthentic in any ways. I would say that conversely, she comes off as being very authentic because this is a very universal experience. But you see in the graphic novel, I think especially because in the art style, the ways in which she's able to take on and off these parts of these like personas and personalities. And in the end, what she's always left with every time when she strips back is that girl, the girl on the right, the girl he married it on page 318. And I think that once she accepts that, that's part of where she starts to move forward. Yes, but I would argue, too, that that girl that he married isn't, like, the same girl throughout. She's an involved version of that girl. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) She's not the same girl throughout the entire book. No, 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 no. But she's an evolved version of that person, you know, with some of those punk ideals, with her own idea of what's right and wrong, all of that stuff. Yeah. Do you want to go to back to like the beginning? Because I know we we started off kind of at the end. Yeah, we started off at the end. That was my fault. <laughs> As a moving on point, like maybe let's start unpacking some of these personas, some of these different phases of her life. <laughs> so at this point, her persona is the Marjan that we knew from volume one, which is kind of a rebel, a girl who is experiencing war for the first time. She has an expectation that Europe is going to be like Heidi or that Austria is going to be like Heidi. I don't know if this is really a part of her persona, but something I noticed in these first few panels is she has a consistently hard time with women throughout this book. And it starts in this volume with her mom's friend, who... Zozo. Yeah, Zozo, who she really paints as, like, having a vendetta against her. And I want to unpack that, because I do think that's kind of a consistent part of her story. There is always, like, some woman figure who has some sort of vendetta against her. Do we think that Zozo actually hates Marjan? And if so, what's the implication? Oh, you know, that's really interesting. I, I also picked up on the fact that in this second part, there a lot of the sort of villains in Marjan's life are women. And I wonder if part of that is circumstantial in the sense that when she does end up living with men who she gets along with more for the most part... They're gay. <laughs> they're gay, yeah. But also, uh, even though they're gay, her mother visits and is still, like, at least a little bit scandalized that she's mm-hmm. living with men. And she ends up coming to accept it. So I wonder if part of this is circumstantial in the sense that she just ends up living with women who she is at odds with because it's more acceptable for her to be living with women. Um, but what Zozo, I think at the very least in the beginning... Marjan paints her out to be a tyrant, especially because it's not just against Marjan, right? She also sees it against Zozo's husband, who is very kind to her. Um, I think the place where that gets trickier is at the later in the novel when she has to go back to Zozo because Zozo has 
money for her that Zozo had owed her mother. And Zozo kind of just gives it up really easily. Like, it's not a fight. It's just kind of like, well, you know, like, this is what we're going to do. Your parents have been trying to find you for months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's where we see, I think, some of that tyrant veneer paint off a little bit. So I do wonder if part of this whole tirade against Zozo comes from the fact that at this point she was 14 and displaced from her home and understandably very angry at the world and kind of just needing a villain. But I'm not entirely certain that that's the interpretation of every female character she ends up being at odds with throughout the second part. I think for Zozo, though, that could be potentially a useful starting point is that she needed almost a scapegoat to be like the the villain in her life and and Zozo might have filled those shoes. Yeah, I guess I'm just like I mean, sending a small kid away to like live with a nun does sound does I mean she's not small, but she's 14. Like to live with nuns that does sound pretty uncharitable. Yeah. But this is a consistent thread throughout this book that, you know, me as like a solidarity stan had a really hard time with, but also I says a lot about like my current privilege. (laughs) Like, because it exists in the first volume too. Like she does prefer the company primarily of boys. And I wonder too, if there's like a little bit of com. I mean, there definitely is later on in the second half some commentary about how Iranian women might interact with one another. But throughout the second half, it does start with Zozo. She likes the husband. Later on in the second half, we see her go to her, and there are like positive female characters too. She just doesn't. They don't last that much. But beyond mom and grandma, they really don't. Like they're in her life for only a, a small point it's really all about like the romantic love interests but later on she goes to visit a teacher and the wife also doesn't like her for some reason so I really saw this idea of like there's a little bit of competition I think going on between her and and uh, other female characters I think that the way Zozo complicates this is that with the later interactions she has that are negative with other women, a lot of them are based in xenophobia and Islamophobia against her. Um, It's implied with the teacher and the wife thing that at the very least from her perspective, she was convinced that her, that she was convinced that her teacher thought she was exaggerating to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then that was, amplified by whatever his wife's reaction was to her and her story with the nuns it is just like straight up islamophobia essentially being unable to comprehend somebody you know with a with a different religion and zozo complicates this because you know ostensibly they're living more similar lives in that sense and i think that's the place where i see more of a potential scapegoat situation than other things but it 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 does complicate it because it's easy to categorize the other things as why there wasn't female solidarity right it's because of xenophobia and Mm -hmm. this relationship at the beginning is more nuanced and more complicated um and i think it's also emphasized by the fact that uh, Shireen is, is Zozo's daughter's name and she also doesn't like her for I don't want to say no reason uh, but 
that she refers to her as being very inane, like very shallow, I would say. And I think that this is part of the reason where it's maybe implied that some of this dislike comes from the fact that she's still processing so much of her own trauma and the whirlwind of what's happening. Because the reason she doesn't like Shireen ultimately is because Shireen can't relate to the fact that uh, Marjan just escaped war, you know? So I think that the tension that we see starting here is really related to what we talk about. We talked about earlier in the sense of like trauma processing and the fact that part of the reason that Marjan has a hard time in Austria in general is because she's stunting her own trauma processing and that ends up affecting whatever relationship she does or doesn't make while she's there. And then even later than that carries back into the relationship she already has in Iran. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. I think at the start of this volume, she thinks and she's kind of sold the idea that she's going to have like a foster family, somebody like that will remind her of home and who will be there to help support her through this transition. And when she gets there, neither of the main characters, Zozo and Shireen, are the way that she imagined them to be. They're not like her family. Their experiences are different. And she kind of realizes that, like, this is, she's going to have to do it herself. She has to assimilate herself. And that's only further emphasized when she's sent off away to live with nuns at the ripe old age of 14. (laughs) Yeah. And then, like, her time in Austria is just kind of processing that. Like, how do I assimilate to this culture? It's a lot of culture shock. I think there's something that's worth considering here, too, with this initial reaction to the foster family is also sort of that internalized hypocritical classism that we were talking about last episode, because part of the major tension within Zozo and Shireen's family is the fact that they... In Iran, they were very rich and their fa- the father was a CEO and they had a lot of money. And in Austria, they're living in very different class circumstances. And uh, Zozo is the main provider and she's a hairdresser and she feels as though her husband is wasting money and it's implied that he's gambling. And all of these things in Marjan's mind paint Zozo out to be sort of like the tyrant. But I think that those drops, like those hints that are given implies the ways in which Marjan couldn't understand yet that class transition of being an immigrant. Mm -hmm. And she does later, (laughs) you know? So it's like, it's like foreshadowing, but it also, I think helps you understand why there's like there's like this this weird anti-woman sentiment comp- with, paired with like a, a misunderstanding of class here happening simultaneously, and all of this is emphasized, I think, authorial choice in the ways in which Zozo talks to her husband in the couple of panels that they do because she seems very hard and she seems very cold and she seems very angry. Which is a fourteen-year-old, you probably really would pick up more than the implied reasons why she's all of those things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, also, I think there is an argument to be made, although we're getting this through so many perspectives that, like, it's hard for us to judge that, like, Zozo isn't 
understanding the life of an immigrant as well either. But there's also like she she did it. She she's working as a hairdresser. So there's also probably some marriage dispute like there is in all relationships, it yeah. seems, in the modern age, <laughs> where it's like, I'm doing this burden. Um and I've been able to do it, so why can't you? But on page 157, I think there's a really great text example of that not understanding. So, like, she understands that he isn't picking up his weight. She understands that the father isn't picking up his weight. But she also isn't at all sympathetic of that. She just thinks that, like, Zozo is being mean about it. Um And on page 157, at the very last panel, she's in bed. She hears them fighting. Uh, Shireen's asleep. At the very last panel, it says, I was ashamed. I'd never heard my parents bicker over money, probably because my father wasn't incompetent. And I think that's like, like, she likes this man, but she views him as being incompetent because he can't provide for his family. So, yeah, she has no idea yet about what the differences are in, in life. So she's just trying to process them. Yeah, and I think that that scene, I mean, honestly, right from from an authorial standpoint, she probably really could have, she spent so comparatively comparatively little time in this house that if she wanted to, she really could have started the story in Vienna saying things didn't work out with my mother's best friend, so I ended up at this nunnery. And in many ways, the story really would have taken the same tack. But I think including these conversations really sets you up to understand the ways in which Marjan is going to understand privilege from a really different perspective in the second half of the novel than the first half of the novel in that she's going to for the first time really encounter what it means to not be in the upper middle class and then moving into the nunnery we also start to understand what she's going to encounter with xenophobia and islamophobia and so it's really a brilliant way to set up the beginning of the second part of the novel, even though comparatively we spend very little time here. It really sets you up for the rest of her journey, I think, especially experiencing different class circumstances for the first time. Yeah, because I agree. this isn't even as bad as it gets, right? She's she's just in probably like a, a, a lower middle class house right now. You know, like they, they seem to have housing security it seems like from what we know, like there's food on the table. Shireen has clothes. They have a car. Uh, and it's just this like little taste of stuff that really sets sets off, sets her off on this journey. Yeah, I, I think you're incredibly right. And I think that like leading up to our next version of her developing an identity, which is when she meets all of her punk friends. I think that we see that when she goes to the grocery store, um, you know, and sees like all of the shelves uh, packed with food. So that's kind of it's playing with privilege there in the fact that like she didn't have access to this before. And she's like realizing that and she thinks that she's privileged now that she has access to all of these things. But then a few pages later, we see her meeting Lucia. She can't speak the same language as Lucia. And Lucia constantly wakes her up with her hair dryer. And so that's like a, it's a, it's a contrast there. So like, here she is, this little girl who grew up in an upper middle class household who probably had her own room her entire life versus here she is, the girl that came from war, who's known war and is like delighted about being in a grocery store. And 
it's the little things too. It's not even necessarily the food. She says that it's uh, the laundry detergent too. And she even, she even makes an aside as an adult author. I think it's almost the only aside she makes as an adult to insert herself. And she says, even to this day, you will always find like nine different scented fabric, like laundry detergents in her house, because it's those little things that really emphasize, I think, what you've lost sometimes, like what you're used to and what you no longer have access to, which is interesting here because she didn't have access to those things in Iran and does now in Austria. But those you're right in the sense that the the privilege sort of ideology here flips around a lot and very quickly. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. And then I think too, that her like, her first try-on role, right, when she gets to school and makes friends with the older kids who are all punk, is her kind of embracing that idea of, like, darkness and and trauma. And that's, like, sort of her way to try and process it because she's making friends with the cool, edgy kids, which we, but we later see that that's, like, not a way that she can, it's superficial. It's not a way she can super, actually process this trauma and i think more importantly it's the it's one of the only personas that we really see her purposefully adopt and discard relatively quickly or at least discard parts of like first of all she has understandably many problems with momo who's an asshole and a racist for a lot of it like just real insensitive and secondly they try and control to a certain extent who she's friends with through this fake marxist lens of like oh they're the plebs essentially you know they're the plebs like we shouldn't you shouldn't associate with them and marjan's just sitting there like i'm good at math and these kids are plenty nice and they need help and i i don't mind helping them you know so that's i think the one of the first places where we see her cementing her view on life and sort of some of those morals about about theory versus like pragmatically what works you know because her punk friends are living in a very theoretical marxist (laughs) life versus how one actually could live in an equitable way and i think that's an interesting setup for like the rest of the story too yeah i'm trying to find the exact place where that happens because i i agree with you i think that's really important because in the first part we see Marx compared to God, right? Like this is theory that she's been immersed in since she was a small child. And yet when she's interacting with these punk Austrian kids, she's made to feel as though she has like no stronghold for it. Like she's known the practicalities of stuff that's similar to this more than they have. And sometimes she hasn't, right? Because she's, never been poor before this and they really belittle her like they belittle her reading list the fact that she hasn't read certain books and so her response is to go ahead and read those books and I I do think that's interesting too because like by the end of the book she's like she doesn't identify as a punk anymore she doesn't like punk music because she really despises this experience that she had with these kids kids like Momo who made her feel as though, like, she wasn't allowed to be an outsider with them. Like, she wasn't cool enough. Yeah, I found I found the example I was thinking of, at the very least, on page 191. Uh, the panels read, The goodbyes were much less painful than 10 years before when I embarked for Austria. There was no longer a war. I was no longer a child. My mother didn't faint, and my grandma was there happily, happily, because since the night of September 
1994, I only saw her again once during the Iranian New Year in March 1995. She died January 4th, 1996. Freedom had a price. Yeah. Yeah. But before she gets to that point, because I think that this is actually a new identity that she's taken on. Like she's in between identities because she goes through her growth spurt. Before that, I just want to talk about the fact that she's like still the outsider. She wears her her weird little snowsuit. She has an experience where all her friends go on holiday which is another thing I think that we should talk about in terms of class a little bit. This idea of like Europeans being obsessed with holiday versus her perspective of holiday. Uh, she reads a bunch. She ends up peeing on her leg like Simone de Beauvoir, which I think <laughs> is interesting. She has her thing with the nuns. She uh, ends up like moving in with her friend who loves sex. I think her name is Julie, right? Yeah, Julie. Yeah, uh, Julie. She, and she's the person who leads her to all of the punks. Yeah, yeah. Julie's the one that leads her to all of the punks, but she's already like be, kind of become friends with them. And then I think that her moving in with Julie is important because I think that this is the start of her like examining her cultural beliefs because Julie loves sex. Julie treats her mom really poorly. And, you know, Marjan doesn't really agree with all of that. And Marjan actually likes Julie's mother, too, partially because Julie's mother has context for Iranian culture and therefore understands Marjan in ways that lots of other people in Austria don't. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, do we want to talk about her relationship with sex? Because her first time being introduced to it, it's, like... It's very shocking to her, but we learn later that she does end up having multiple sex partners. And that's kind of similar with her first introduction to drugs. When her friends start doing drugs, she doesn't even actually, like, inhale pot smoke. But later she's on a, she, like, goes to an anarchist, like, commune and does a bunch of drugs. And it's never really, it's, like, kind of explicitly stated that this is bad for her because she's overdoing it. But I sort of appreciated that, like, she doesn't really condemn the anarchist cult friends for this in the same way that she might kind of imply that her punk friends aren't the best influence on her. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a worthwhile thing to talk about um, is I think that part of what we see when we talk about her moral evolution, I, I guess to say her cultural context contextual evolution that leads her to be the person she is at the end of the story. These are some of the major things that shift for her between point A and point Z versus some of her thoughts about like patriotism and stuff like that, which stay relatively consistent throughout. Um, Because you're right. When she first meets Julie, she's scandalized by how she talks about sex and it takes her some time to open up to, using words like vagina and stuff like that. And then at the end, she like staunchly believes that she has the right to have multiple sex partners, that she has the right to be on birth control simply because she wants to have sex and not get pregnant. And that's also one of the the places of tension where at the beginning, in that sense, we see her as an outsider who doesn't necessarily fit in with these European ideals. And then later, she ends up almost being an outsider in her own culture because she's ostracized for these new ideals that she's created. And this contributes to her depression and her ultimate, like, identity crisis. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we also see other women, multiple, like, other Muslim women uh, really 
be offended by this fact that she is a sexual being and, and multiple times towards the end when she's back in Iran. Uh, a place I really want to look at because we're running out of time on page 189 <laughs> is her like physical transformation and puberty where, you know, we have a bunch of pictures of her face transforming, you know, her, her left eye gets her right eye grows and then her left eye grows and her jaw grows and, her left foot is a half a size bigger even today um, that I really think kind of roots us physically in this idea of identity and transformation, right? She's still the same person, but she has more to her now. And she even has, as I mentioned before, a mark, a mark of like an anchor, this period of being in Australia or not Australia, my bad, Austria anchors her and she develops her beauty mark. and. The language around her beauty mark, I'm going to read the the three panels in which it's mentioned. So actually, I'll start with the four about her nose to give you context. Of course, my nose tripled its size and was decorated by a large beauty mark, which I thought hideous at the time. Then my chin advanced majestically only to retreat to its original position several months later. But in those four panels, we see the beauty mark. Um. And I think the fact that she says, which I thought hideous at the time, is really telling because that beauty mark does appear larger when we see her acting as her true self throughout the rest of this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a symbol of how she tries to hide her identity and then accepts it sort of back and forth and back and forth throughout. Yeah, I think that we should talk about what happens at the end of Austria, because I think that gives important context to why she ends up in her first marriage. So throughout this time, just to give everyone a summary, she ends up, her all of her punk friends move away. She ends up dating a guy who we later find out is gay. The guy introduces him, her to his friends that are anarchists at a commune. They like to play tag and do a bunch of drugs, trippy drugs, psychedelics. Which she's disappointed about. She wanted them to be real anarchists. Well, yeah. real anarchists. Violent anarchists, we should say. Yeah. Yeah. And then she meets another boy who is Austrian. And we really don't get a lot about how he specifically is shitty either until the very end when she's able to kind of reflect on why their relationship didn't work. But we meet another boy He's kind of shitty. He, like, makes her pay for gas. His mom is super racist and bigoted and kicks her out. And after she finds out that her second boyfriend has been sleeping with another girl, she kind of loses her shit and ends up getting into a fight with her landlord and ends up moving out onto the street for three months. And getting very ill while she's on the street. Yeah, so we see a lot of reflection here in this part for a couple of reasons. The first is like Harmony touched on before, part of it was the drug use in that she was overdoing it for herself. She almost didn't graduate high school because of it. And it wasn't because she wasn't smart, but she was tired all the time, essentially, from this like very party heavy lifestyle that she was living. And then the second piece of reflection she does personally is about the fact that what she put on her boyfriend at the time was objectively kind of unfair. He was her anchor for two years, the only person she loved. And because of that, she treated him not just as boyfriend, but as best friend, confidant, mother, father, sibling. And that was a lot to put on one person. 
And then I think most importantly, though, we see her able to think objectively about her failings and then also still recognize that she didn't deserve to be cheated on and still deserve to be treated better by this than this boy who didn't defend her, who used her for money and other resources, who used her as a, as a drug mule, essentially, because ultimately he didn't care whether she got cut by the police, but, you know, cared whether he did. Mm-hmm. So it's this really monumental moment of self-reflection that leads her to almost having this, like, mental breakdown when her landlord, in a very bigoted moment, accuses her of stealing a, a brooch. And that's when this whole explosion comes out that leads her to living on the street. So there's so much happening here where at the time Marjan is having like this really explosive moment in her life where everything is essentially falling apart interspersed with like adult author Marjan being able to really expertly give us like 2020 hindsight context for all of that too. Which she didn't do with the first marriage as much, I would say. I think that this is especially important because I think that this is very much related to her guilt about not being in Iran at this, like during their wartime. Whenever she talks to her parents, she doesn't tell them about her struggles. Her mom comes and visits, but she's also careful to not tell her about her struggles. And even after this point, where she ends up on the street and almost dies and goes back to Iran, it takes her a long time to finally tell people what her experience was like because she doesn't feel as though she has a right to process her trauma. I think she also, I think it's implied that she blames herself too for some of the circumstances that she found herself in, which from an outside perspective, you can see is unfair, right? But there's a lot of guilt harbored there because I think she feels as though some of her circumstances could have been avoidable. And like, maybe that's true, I guess. But she was dealing with people who didn't care about her and who were actively trying to make her life harder. And as a late teenager, trying to navigate those scenarios in the best way that she could, you know? I've had friends, I don't know, their countries weren't dealing with what Iran was dealing with at the time, but who have, like, come and lived in the United States. But they've always had families and, like, people who, like, who aren't necessarily related to them, but, like, people who are family friends who, like, have some sort of anchoring for cultural context and, like, I'm talking about, like, friends in high school. I can't imagine being 14 and having to deal with that all by yourself with no anchoring, no cultural context. And I think, too, a part of it, like, a part of this guilt and feeling like she doesn't have a right to this trauma is the fact that, like, she's having an immigrant child experience and that, like, her parents sacrificed for her. And her mom tells her that no matter what she does, she has to do be the best at it, essentially. So, like, it's this idea of failure, of not just, like, failing herself, but failing her family and her people, while being, like, the only symbol of her people <laughs> in this place of difference. It's very intense. And what happens at the end of Austria, the lack of support system she has goes so deeply that she feels as though for personally imposed reasons, but related to all of this, that when she finds herself experiencing homelessness, she doesn't even call her parents for help. 
it's only after she almost dies and is hospitalized that she calls them and says, you need to bring me home. Like, I can't do this anymore. There's a real sense of self-reliance, I think, that waxes and wanes during this part while she's in Austria. Because at first, after she's failed by the adults around her who were ostensibly supposed to care for her, there's a real, like, I have to do everything myself and it's just me and, like, I've got to make my own way in the world. And then she falls in with this boyfriend who she does fall in love with and makes everything. She doesn't feel alone anymore. And it's really the realization that she was doing things by herself and was going to continue to have to rely on herself that ends up sort of making her crack a little bit, I would say, which is totally understandable, right? Like, I think anyone in that scenario (laughs) would. uh, Being self-reliant is overrated in my opinion you know like you should be an independent person and you should be able to rely on yourself but like there's a reason societies are the way they are and it's because humans need to rely on other humans yeah and it's that lack of support system that really leads to all of this for her and she doesn't know how to talk about that or articulate that and therefore she just kind of keeps it all to herself in this like self-blamey state that then leads to depression that leads to everything that we talked about earlier yeah Is there anything else that you want to touch on about that? Like, oh, I guess God, God is a reoccurring character, even in the second half. He comes back eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess too, like God is part of the reason that she attributes to her passing a lot of her tests. God is part of the reason she attributes to her surviving that period of homelessness. And towards the very end, just to kind of, because I do think it's important because we're talking about a woman who's in an Islamic nation uh, and whose whose religion really has been used to perpetuate a lot of really awful things. So I, I do think that's important. When she does her test and she's back in Iran, she's back in Iran and she eventually wants to go to university and they have to have a a test to see how religious they are, essentially. My relationship with the school's lackeys didn't please my friends much. So you seem to be on awfully good terms with the peons. Not really. I just cut their hair. That's not all you do for them. You kiss their asses from time to time. I do not. I just think they're nice. That's all. Peons. They're peons. They have a fixed psychological profile. They are thirsty for power and are looking to control us. Yeah, like the cops. Exactly. Life is pain. Pain is everything. Everything is nothingness. Therefore, life is nothingness. When man recognizes this whole, he can no longer live like an earthworm, inventing games of leaders and followers to forget his fickleness. Whatever, existence is not absurd. There are people who believe in it and who give their lives for values like liberty. What rubbish. Even that, it's a distraction from boredom. So my uncle died to distract himself. For Momo, death was the only domain where my knowledge exceeded his. On this subject, I always had the last word. Noble combat, blah, blah, blah. Okay, are we gonna smoke a joint? Sure. Okay, so I think that's important too because God is a part of her identity. God is a figure for her. It doesn't matter that she does not speak Arabic. It does not matter that she prefers to not wear the veil. Like, it doesn't matter that her country has been, um, you know, using God to perpetuate a lot of human rights. Violations. Violations, yeah. That's still a figure in her life and still somebody, like, it's still a part of her identity. She still believes in God. Um, And one of those driving forces, I think, that continue for her throughout her experience until the end 
is that her relationship with God changes and changes rather drastically, I would say, throughout the entire arc. But her general belief of religion, like, doesn't fade away. Like, God is a figure for her for most of this. Almost all of it. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that she's necessarily from what we're given a very religious person, but she is spiritual. And like, I think that I think the theme of faith is really important here, especially because like, that is a part of her original identity as a small child. And that's as somebody who is Muslim, and who has had to live in the West and goes back to live in the West, and therefore is probably stigmatized a lot for having that faith. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. You bring up one last thing that I want to talk about if you're okay to move on, mm-hmm. which is I do think we need to talk about the fact that she does ultimately leave Iran again and promises to never come back. And I think it's important to unpack the ways in which this exodus is different from what happens at the beginning of the novel. Because in some ways, with part two, right, we have almost a circular story, right, where we start with her leaving Iran and we end with her leaving Iran. But the circumstances are so different. And the second leaving is so much more empowered that I think it's worth talking about for a sec. Yeah, I agree. So she decides to leave Iran because she doesn't feel like she can be her full self there. Yeah. And... She's also discovered that it's not worth it to try and make her marriage work anymore, which is a very empowered decision, I think. And she's decided that France is the place that she can make all of that happen for herself. I think the big deal here is that she's doing it on her own terms. She's choosing to leave and her parents have like been positioning her for this. For a while, they wanted her to leave. They're like, you can't be your full self here. You'll get killed. (laughs) Um, So you should really end up going to Europe. And they take a better approach at it this time, I think. And part of it, too, is the fact that, like, they're not being ravaged by war. So there's it's safer for her to be there. But, like, they do... They help build it up. It's not as drastic. And also, she's like... She's learned more about herself. She's comfortable with her current identity. So she has the tools she needs now to leave. Which is important because she's still going to a place where she doesn't necessarily have a support system. But I think it's also important because she's able to, her leaving this time is also much less abrupt, right? She goes to France in 1994 to take this test and is accepted and then has to go back to Iran for a couple of months. And this time she talks about being able to savor her home and savor time with her family and friends. And the fact that it's a lot more sweet than bitter this time for the most part when she leaves. Although I do think the way the novel ends, the very last panel is really difficult because it also talks about the fact, I think, that sometimes making the empowered decision, making the decision that's right for you, doesn't always mean that your decision is the easy one or doesn't require sacrifice. Because the panel, the last panel talks about the fact that... Miss Satcherby, I see from your file that you have lived in Austria. Did you wear the veil there? No, I have always thought that if women's hair posed so many problems, God would certainly have made us bald. 
Do you know how to pray? No. And may I know why? Like all Iranians, I don't understand Arabic. If praying is talking to God, I prefer to do it in a language that I know, I believe in, but I speak to him in Persian. The prophet Muhammad said, God is closer to us than our jugular veins. God is always with us. He is in us, right? Thank you, Miss Satrapi. You can go now. So it also, I think, really highlights the fact that no matter what decisions you make, you're making a sacrifice. You know, there's no perfect happy ending in the real world. And there is a price to everything. It's about weighing out what costs you can and can't pay. And of course, that's not to say that she like willingly sacrificed her relationship with her grandmother or anything like that's not what I'm trying to imply here. But I think it does usefully highlight the fact that just because you're making the empowered choice doesn't always mean the consequences of those choices won't hurt you in the future. And that doesn't necessarily mean it was the wrong choice, but life isn't a storybook in that way. So it is kind of a bittersweet ending. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like totally bring us down, but I just think no, that it's, it's worthwhile to think about that, you know? Because so many times, I think sometimes when you talk about feminism, it, it's talking about like the the right to make empowered choices for yourself. And like, that's the happy ending almost. And I think it's useful here to talk about the fact that even when you have that ability to make the, the empowered choice, when you have the ability to make the, the free choice as she talks about it, there can still be consequences and prices that are unforeseen and stuff like that. I think that's really important too, especially because I'm trying to remember, but like the two texts that we covered last season that had to do with a Muslim character were both Muslims living in a Western world. And they were, they dealt with difficult themes, at least one of them did, but they ended up in a storybook manner. And that was, that was a part of the empowerment was this idea that like, we can go ahead and make our own happy endings and like seeing a happy ending for a character who's normally marginalized can be empowering. And I do think that that's still true, but also this gives us a very realistic take of what like real life is, is like and what real life happy endings are because in reality, even if something is mostly good, you know, it's it's never going to be 100% good. Yeah, of course. And definitely, you know, the two novels we read last season were novels, first of all. One of them was, you know, oh. a young adult novel. Two. I think one was a graphic novel. It was um, Miss Marvel. Did we read three? I'm, I'm thinking about Miss Marvel and Does My Head Look Big in This? That's also what I'm thinking about. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> but I meant I meant novels in the sense that they that they were fictional though. Like Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so the happy ending aspect is to a certain extent a part of fiction. The does my head look big in this especially is like a young adult novel, right, which is really there to build people up. Uh, and I think that that's useful, but I appreciate the fact that given that this is a memoir and a true story, it offers that more realistic true to life version of a happy ending and i think is consistent with her very authentic tone and like way of delivering things throughout the entire book yeah i agree i agree all right are we ready to wrap this up yeah i think we probably should (laughs) we're busy women with busy lives uh maggie what are you reading oh wait no first was this a feminist was this volume feminist yes But I think more from the perspective that it was ultimately about one woman finding empowerment than anything else, especially given the fact that we talked about 
the fact that she has some really difficult relationships with the other woman in her life for various reasons. But like, ultimately, this is about one woman finding freedom and emancipation and figuring out who she is. And I feel like inherently that story is feminist. What about you? What would you say? I think I agree. I think, yeah, I think the fact that it's so rooted in identity and kind of pushes back against like traditional mediums for storytelling or traditional mediums, even for memoirs, the fact that she's like giving herself a voice and doing it in a very unique way that exists essentially outside of the canon is inherently feminist. It doesn't always meet my solidarity standards, but I I still think that it is a feminist story in the fact that like she finds empowerment. And then I also think if we're looking at it from like a true critical literary analysis lens, which we rarely do, <laughs> it's it's primarily, I think, the medium too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think also the solidarity lens here, while still important, has to be read differently because it is a memoir. And like as much as... I think in real life, we all try and, you know, practice female solidarity. Like there's just always going to be people in circumstances like in this novel where like, you're just not going to get along (laughs) Uh, and things like that. So yeah, I agree with you. What is your homework this week? So I think it's actually kind of along those lines. When we had Elena on to talk about uh, If You Leave Me, the solidarity issue came up as well. And I do think that there's something like there's some unpacking I need to do there based off of like my experience in the society that I grew up in and the fact that that isn't the case for everyone and that like different cultural norms may mean that solidarity is a lot less accessible. So I think that that's my homework, like really thinking about and unpacking whether or not my solidarity issue is a little bit too white feministy and how to analyze texts that exist outside of my cultural context and might deal with solidarity differently. And finding something else that is like equally as empowering to there and like reassessing my standards. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I get where you're coming from. I think my homework this week is that I want to read some more feminist memoirs, which we've got coming up on the podcast this season, actually. But... I found through this real deep dive that we've done with this graphic novel that memoirs for me are a really useful place to kind of bring in the intersection of some of the analysis that we do with literature and some of the nonfiction feminist theory that I personally can find some sometimes kind of hard to get through, even though it's worth reading that like this is a really great intersection between those two places because you're still working with a a piece of nonfiction that's talking about real people and real lives, but also there's like that literary lens through it. So I think I want to explore more feminist memoir, feminist, feminist memoirs to really do more of a deep dive into those intersections as a place for me that might be more fruitful than reading The Second Sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like straight feminist criticism and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. Uh, And I'm sure like, I I think eventually we will start incorporating more uh, straight feminist criticism, but probably in more bite-sized ways than uh, our full like book deep dives. Yeah, I can't handle it mentally. It's so (laughs) uplifting. What are you reading, Harmony? What am I reading? I'm reading, let's see, what am I reading? Let me think. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just finished a book recently. Oh, you know what I just finished? I finished The Lost Coast. And by just, I mean a few days ago, but it's been a while since we've recorded. So I'm, I'm going to give it a highlight. Anyway, I just finished The Lost Coast, which is a YA novel. Um, and it takes place in Humboldt County. You know, my love. And it's never explicitly stated, but Arcata is mentioned, which is where I used to live. And it's about a bunch of like teen queer feminist witches. I don't know the author's race, but I think that it does a pretty good job of being inclusive, especially because as someone that lived there, though there are a lot of racial intersections because we have, you know, in multiple indigenous tribes there. We have, we're in California, so we have a lot of Latina people, things like that. It is a still primarily white area in Northern California. And so I think it like did a good job kind of representing that and being very representative. So I recommend it if anyone's looking for like a fun queer witch read. It's super cute. And now I'm reading, I'm back to Libba Bray's The Diviners series and I'm on the third book. And Your next couple of weeks are going to be hella Libra heavy. Yeah. Well, I'm reading, I'm still reading the second, I'm still reading the second uh, Great and Terrible Beauty novel too. Anyway, it's called, let me see what it's, Before the Devil Breaks You. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm all about the that YA life right now. <laughs> all right, Miss Mags, what about you? I'm reading Harrow the Ninth which is about lesbian necromancers in space. Highly recommend. It's a sequel to a book about lesbian necromancers in space. (laughs) And I'm reading A Rogue of One's Own, which is a feminist historical romance. And I'm I'm digging it. So that's, that's where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. That's very fun. That's very fun. We already did homework. So what are we talking about next week? Next week, we are on a break. And then after that, we're coming with at you with a great and terrible beauty. Right now, the schedule as I'm recording this doesn't reflect that. So if it doesn't, by the time this comes out, I'm really sorry. But we are definitely going on a break next week. And we're switching things up. But like the schedule is still, it's still the same. Okay. Anything else? No, I don't think so. Talk to you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.